What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Mind Over Macros podcast. As always, I am your host, Mike Milner. And today's episode was a fascinating episode. I truly loved this conversation. I had Dr. Connie McReynolds on the show, who is the author of the book, Solving the ADHD Riddle, The Real Cause and Lasting Solutions to Your Child's Struggle to Learn. And Dr. McReynolds, uh, she's a psychologist. She was a teacher. She has been in the field for a very long time studying ADHD. And she is doing some really revolutionary work in getting to the root cause and helping to not just alleviate symptoms, but but solve the problem from the root. And if, if that sounds familiar to you, it hopefully should because you listen to a certain host of a certain podcast that talks about this frequently, how so often we treat symptoms and so often we look at symptoms and skip over the root of the issue. And uh, this admittedly was a topic, uh, talking about ADHD, it was a topic that was very close to home and, and personal for myself and for Mel. So selfishly, I wanted to get Dr. Connie on the show, and it was really, really fascinating. Uh, a lot of insight and uh, just answers, which is is really what all we're looking for, right? Like, there's there's a lot of questions uh, surrounding ADHD. I know it can be frustrating if uh, you have a, a kid, your if your child has ADHD, has been diagnosed or not, or if you struggle yourself. Uh, all we want are answers, and this episode I think is going to be really enlightening to give you those answers. And uh, if you enjoy it, of course, we'd love for you to share. Uh, It would be great if you could leave a five-star rating and review, first and foremost, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe and follow wherever you listen. And then share on Instagram if you enjoy the episode. You can post it to your stories. You can tag me at coach underscore Mike underscore Milner. And if you want to get a copy of Dr. Connie's book, Solving the ADHD Riddle, uh, you can get that at her website, which is www.conniemcreynolds.com. And I will post everything in the show notes so you can get access to everything there. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. All right, what's going on, everybody? I am joined today by a very special guest on the show. I have Dr. Connie McReynolds, who is the author of the book, Solving the ADHD Riddle. The real cause and lasting solutions to your child's struggle to learn. And as I was saying before, I hit record to uh, Connie that I'm selfishly very excited for this episode because uh, it's it's a little bit close to home and personal. The topic of ADHD is my stepson is in the process of being diagnosed, and it's a a frequent topic of conversation for my wife and I. But uh, I'm excited to have you. Uh, thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So I'd love to start just with your your background. I'd love to hear uh, kind of how you got into uh, the work that you're doing and, and your specialty and and kind of as far back as you want to go. But what, what, <laughs> what led you into this field? Well, uh, the condensed version, I think probably is appropriate here. But my mother taught second grade for 32 years in the same classroom. And so I grew up kind of in the second grade, kind of watching children and what she went through at times with children. Back then, there weren't so many, um, but there was one little boy who couldn't learn how to read. And so she took a particular interest and concern toward him. 
And over the summer, uh, took him up to a close, you know, a university that was close by uh, to have him evaluated. And they came up with something called dyslexia, which at the time wasn't well understood. Uh, so that was kind of the foray. And she was a teacher and I come from a line of teachers. So I ended up teaching and then part of my academic career at a university uh, following my degree in rehabilitation psychology uh, became one of creating an institute at a local university in Southern California. And the creativity that I was afforded allowed me to kind of foray into new territory. And that's where I discovered this EEG biofeedback process I'm sure we're going to touch base on. And through that journey of the last 15 years, it's where I came to uncover what I think ADHD really is. And so that's kind of it in a thumbnail of uh, how I ended up here. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fascinating. I, and it's, I guess the, the best question is, what do you feel like is the most appropriate way to start to really dive into this topic? Because it's such a robust topic. And um, I think there's so many different directions that we can go. And I think like even just from the diagnosis process and the, you know, increase in how many kids are are being diagnosed with ADD, ADHD, and um, more of the advancements that we've had along the years. Like, what do you feel like is the most appropriate starting point to really give the audience an understanding of uh, kind of how this field has evolved and and kind of your your expertise on it? Well, I tend to be an outside the box thinker. So I think that has been a benefit uh, with this work with children, because as we were starting to work with children in my clinics, I started realizing there was something going on and it was trying to understand what that was with children, why these medications weren't working, why the behavioral interventions weren't working, why all the diagnoses in the world wasn't really leading to any changes for these children. Parents were still struggling. Teachers were struggling. Children were struggling. It's like something is wrong here. This isn't working. What is going on? So as I started looking at the data that we were getting and started peeling all of this back, really kind of peeling the onion back to try to get to the core of what this is, what I really discovered that for the vast majority, I think, of children who are diagnosed with ADHD, they actually have this underlying root causal factor that doesn't necessarily fit into the existing world which are these auditory and visual processing problems. And when I first started uncovering this, literally for five years, I was researching, trying to figure out who has identified this. It wasn't anything in the literature 15 years ago about this. And so I studied it for another five and thought, you know, I think I have to get something out on this because I think we have something different here that we need to have a conversation about. And really it's that, the label of ADHD doesn't tell us anything about a child. It just suggests there is something interfering with this child's ability to live well in our defined world, uh, whatever that might be. And so with, I mean, I guess what was the kind of disconnect between how it was being defined previously and how you would define it now, or or what was kind of that uh, light bulb moment for you that said, you know, we we may be just kind of looking at symptoms here and not really addressing the root cause. You are absolutely point on here because I think in our world and nothing against allopathic medicine and the great things that it can do, but we often are chasing symptoms 
And what I realized is that all these symptoms are simply a language that these children are trying to communicate something to the parents around them, the adults around them, that things aren't working, that maybe they can't remember things, but they don't know how to say, you know, mom, I think my auditory vigilance is off today. I'm not quite tracking with you. So I can't remember what you just told me. Can you repeat it again? You're not going to get that from a five-year-old, a 10-year-old, or even sometimes a 25-year-old. What you're going to get are some behaviors. And the behaviors are frustration, irritation, anger, sometimes withdrawing. Looking at the behaviors became so critical. It's like, what are these behaviors telling us? Well, they're telling us that something's off with these children. And then what I discovered is when we were doing this assessment, we were able to peel back look at these 37 areas of auditory and visual processing. And when we tackled those and retrained the brain in those areas with about 20 hours of brain training, those symptoms went away permanently. Wow. So what what is the process? Like you mentioned some of the symptoms and some of the behaviors. And how do we kind of draw the line? Because there's like two things that come to mind. Number one is the personal experience that I'm going through now with our stepson. And, you know, there was just a lot of issues with being able to retain and process information, hold attention, kind of always felt like, you know, when I'm speaking is, are you, are you here? Are you somewhere else? Like what's happening? And there was kind of that almost like aloofness, I guess I would describe it. Uh, And then I also remember when I was in high school, I had a really good friend of mine and his, his symptom was, and I, you know, it was just, he really struggled with, completing tests on time. That was like the only real symptom, like everything else socially fine, um, performed really well academically, but just felt like when it came time for, for taking a test, he just took forever to like process and get answers on the paper. And that was enough to warrant, oh, let's do some, some tests. It's like, where, where do we draw the line between like normal child, teen, adolescent behaviors versus, oh, there might be some red flags here that we should pursue further uh, testing. I think it's the level of struggle that you may see in someone, because if it's just a one-off on, I had a bad day taking a test, that's one thing. If every time the test rolls around, it's the same kind of thing, then that's suggesting there's a pattern or there's something going on. Uh, The same with children. And this is where it gets so tricky with for parents and teachers, is that we really have a combination of two or three different things that could be happening for why your stepson is looking aloof or maybe drifting off. That probably, again, haven't met him, haven't done my assessment, generalizing here. (laughs) That's probably some auditory processing challenges. So um, if we were to do the assessment, we would run this assessment. It takes about 20 minutes, a computer-based assessment that generates a 15-page report. So I can get this in 15 to 20 minutes to figure out literally what is happening here. And I can tell you that when I present this to parents, they're tearful sometimes, they're relieved sometimes because they have answers where they haven't had any before, and they're recognizing they don't have a bad child, they don't have someone who's willfully misbehaving, they have a child who can't remember what they've been told. So there are 37 areas that I'm looking at with that, and then I have a little bit more I do on some memory and sequencing just to kind of round it out to see what other pieces of the puzzle might be needing to fill in here. And so it's really, you know, what's the struggle level? So if a child straight A's, but they're working 
nonstop. I've got children that are coming in. The parents are saying, you know, we do six, eight hours of homework all the time. This child's doing nothing but struggling with this homework. Yes, she or he's getting great grades, but the struggle that goes through here is, is tremendous. I evaluate and yes, there's something going on and there's something we can do about it. Yeah. And I think um, for, for our situation, a lot of times it was the, the struggle in school was like not, not turning in assignments or just completely forgetting. And then, and it came across as almost a lack of effort, but really it was just like, you know, that there was something we could tell that something was just not connecting. And, um, you know, when he would play or when he does play video games, he can hold attention and, and focus for hours. And so that was when, um, my wife talked to somebody who said that he has uh, likely the attentive type of ADHD. Are there different buckets that you look at when you're when you're diagnosing? Well, um, I'll just say after 30 some years in psychology and rehab counseling, I I value the fact that we sometimes need to give diagnoses. I also value the fact that those diagnoses don't always tell us a whole lot. Um, so I prefer to focus. I can do the diagnoses all day long, and sometimes we need to do that. But I prefer to really look at what are the processing behaviors that we're seeing? What are we seeing? What does this assessment corroborate? What are teachers seeing? Does that all line up? And then when we get the lineup with all of this, we can say, okay, perhaps this child doesn't have the stamina to get through to an end of a task or if someone's lecturing someone and they're drifting off, that lecture's not landing. So you might have to do things a little bit differently if you understand that it's not sticking. And it isn't because your child doesn't want to, because your child may be getting in trouble for not listening. So they really want to listen. But if they can't, it's a no-win situation. <laughs> so we have to kind of look at things from a different angle. And that's really what this is all about, is peeling all this back. And yes, there are different buckets, but I would say there's 37 different buckets of what this can look like. So we you know we, how far into that do we need to go? Or can we just say, okay... We have some areas of auditory, we have some areas of visual, and we have, you know, a process here that I can help you through the process. So, for example, if a child, if I find out this child has what we call auditory vigilance in this case, which is not ability to sustain auditory attention, drifting off, uh, can't get back on task. It's like, don't give 10 or 12 things for this child to remember. One thing at a time, check for comprehension check for follow through and then do the next thing because there could be some auditory sequencing memory problems there. And so one of the telltale signs that I'm looking for in the interviews with parents is, okay, when you tell your child to go do two or three or four things around the house, how does that go? Mm. And then I get the stories. Oh my gosh, on the way to the bathroom to brush his teeth, he's pet the dog and he's by three minutes, he's completely forgotten where he's supposed to be. It's like, okay, <laughs> pretty consistent. Yes. All right. So we have a sequencing challenge here. <laughs> so one thing, check and have him do it or her do it. And then it changes up the interaction. And that's really what I'm after is changing up the interaction so that parents realize this isn't a punishment-based intervention that's needed. Punishment for these children isn't going to result in anything better happening. And that's another one of the telltale signs. It's like if you've taken away everything this child has in his or her life and we still have all the behaviors, we're still having difficulties, clearly that isn't the solution then because that approach is not yielding a different outcome. And that's 
part of the basis for this. It's like, what's your outcome? <laughs> what are you doing? What's your outcome? Yes or no? <laughs> is this making a difference? Because if it isn't, then it's not going to work doing it 10 times more. <laughs> and I have to imagine that a lot of parents unknowingly default to the punishment style of, of treatment because they don't know any better. And it's just kind of a, out of frustration. And sometimes we think that everybody sees the world and processes the world the way that we do. So it's almost that inherent bias. And, and, and we kind of unfortunately project that onto our children at times. And maybe sometimes teachers do the same thing. Um, what are some of the other like traditional, when you're looking at, you know, maybe it's from a psychologist or psychiatrist that would um, kind of standard treatment options that you would typically see with, with ADHD and maybe where those are falling short. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite topics. It's <laughs> like, so, as I said, I've been in the field for such a long time that um, what typically happens, kind of what I call more the traditional approach or the traditional intervention is you know, they're given assessments. And I'll also say sometimes, and I've had children say this and teenagers say this and parents say, you know, we met with this doctor, we were there for less than 10 minutes, asked some questions, and then we got a prescription. And sometimes the parents are a little uncomfortable with that. Sometimes they go ahead and try it and they may show up and say, you know, we've tried all these different medications. They work for a little bit or they don't work or the side effects are a real concern or my child is refusing to take this medication. Uh, so it can be any combination of that. And perhaps they've been down all the behavioral interventions. Again, the behavioral interventions are designed to change the behaviors. Well, if I can't remember what you're telling me to do as a behavioral intervention, not sure how well it's going to hold. It's not going to work. Because if I can't remember three seconds ago what you just told me to do, everyone's just going to get frustrated. And what's what's the intent? or the hope with the medication? Um, what do we check? Because even uh, just recently, we came across a clinical trial that was available for um, kids with ADHD. It was kind of a new medication and they were rolling out you know, an option to um, you know, enroll. Uh, your, your, I think it was an eight week trial or something along those lines. Um, like what is, <laughs> what is the objective with the medication that's available? Or even as we kind of look to try to advance certain prescriptions, like what's, what's the hope from the practitioner side? Well, the hope from the practitioner side is that you get rid of the symptoms. You get rid of the behaviors that are annoying people. <laughs> and so, you know, teachers will say, and they, they are not supposed to do this, but they'll say, you need to put your child on medication. And they, they can't do that. They can't say that. They're not supposed to be able to say that, but they do. They get frustrated too. And so it's all about the behaviors. It's about the behavior. So if Johnny's out of his seat all day long, irritating his peers and colleagues and the teacher, all the teacher wants is for him to sit in his seat and be still. Hmm. Okay, well, if we use a medication, perhaps we can dial down that behavior and Johnny can sit in his seat and be still. The idea, of course, is to improve the outcome for the child, the parents, and the teachers. I get that completely. Um, trouble is, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes there are side effects. So I'm not against all of that. It's just my question is, is it working? Is this working? Okay. The people who come to my clinics, it hasn't been working or they don't want to try that option. They want to try something different. Yeah. And what's, what's kind of happening in the brain with some of those medications where, um, is it, 
you know, kind of playing on neurotransmitters and um, getting, I don't know, increase in acetylcholine or something along those lines to to try to maintain more focus and attention? Um, like what's kind of happening as that chemical reaction? Well, each one's a little bit different. So I'm not going to go too far into all of that because I'm not a pharmacist and <laughs> I don't want to step on anyone's toes on some of this. But generally speaking, what is happening is it's to improve like the processing in the brain. So if a child's super fidgety, some of what they have discovered is that if you give a certain kind of medication, that that seems to have a counterbalance effect so the child can focus better. Great. If that's working, perfect. <laughs> that's a good thing. Um, and I'm going to wax back just a tad to the video game business because the video game, in fact, I even put a little bit of that in my book about parents saying, you know, he can do video games for 10 hours and never take a break and he can't do 10 minutes of his homework. And it's like, well, because the video game drives dopamine production, his homework doesn't. <laughs> so a child who's short on dopamine is going to find ways to create more dopamine and video games that are out on the market are the perfect match for that. And lead, in some cases, to significant addiction. And I've treated some kiddos um, who, as the parents were trying to wean them off, became violent at home because they couldn't get the dopamine fix. And they were going th literally through withdrawals because of the amount of dopamine that some of these games can generate in some children. Now, it's not across the board, and I'm not all against video games. <laughs> but I'm saying, if you have clear evidence and this family did there was clear evidence that this 12 year old was beyond the pale on what was happening here and they had some real serious challenges uh, so we really tackled some of that and they had other family wraparound support because it was a significant problem so all of the medication all of these things are really changing our chemicals in our brain everything we do though in our day changes the brain chemicals. And I know you know this <laughs> because of your history and the things that you're working on in your career. Uh, we have to be aware of this. We have to be aware of what we're watching, what we're listening to, what we're doing, what we're thinking, what we're saying, what we're eating, our exercise. It's the whole thing. It has to be the whole picture. Yeah. And since you kind of touched on that, I'm really curious. That was one of the questions that I was uh, planning to ask was about the impact. So I, I really wanted to kind of transition into everything that you said makes a lot of sense into the the current treatment options and where they might fall short, where the gaps might exist. And, you know, if I'm trying to fix a behavior and, uh, you know, my child can't remember uh, what was being told or or the, the things that I was being told to do, then of course it makes sense that the, the behavior intervention is not going to be effective. And if the medication isn't working, then then where do we turn? And I think um, I want to get into what fixing the root of the issue actually looks like. Um, so maybe along those same lines, if you want to touch on the impact of something like nutrition or exercise, and one of the things that our stepson has gotten into lately is is the gym, and he's become like a gym fanatic, and um, it's just really into it. And it was funny because once he started going consistently. We started, we were like, oh my God, he like cured his ADHD. It was like all these behaviors started changing. Uh, and now there's, you know, there's been some stuff that's popped back up, but uh, we really noticed a, a stark difference from when he started exercising regularly and the impact that it had on some of those symptoms. So uh, maybe just kind of, as you talk about the kind of the root cause, um, you know, way of addressing things, the role that exercise, nutrition, uh, and kind of lifestyle variables, stress, and all of that plays into, into the equation. 
it's all very important. So what we know in today's world is that, oh my goodness, children spend more time in front of their uh, electronic devices than they do outside playing or doing anything outside. So they get so tied in to the cell phone, having that in their face or the computer or the game board or whatever it is that they're happy to do that. And, you know, if they're a child that has a little bit of stuff going on and the parents are a little bit worn down and this takes care of it, then everyone's getting a little bit of relief. The trouble is it doesn't necessarily get at the root cause again. And so getting outside, doing things, socializing, getting out of the house, just, it does, you know, if it's the gym, fine, you're out of the house. You're not tied to your electronics. <laughs> and that's part of the key here is monitoring, monitoring, monitoring the amount of electronic time because we're so tied to our computers and everything that's going on. Cut it off. You know, I'll tell parents, it's like, you know, during the week, if you can just get rid of everything except schoolwork, do so. And that includes TV. It, it means you don't spend 10 hours in front of the TV on the weekend either. It means you do other things. Find those things for balance in your life. Nutrition, huge. You know, if you're eating fast food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, it's going to be a problem. We all know that. <laughs> the nutrients aren't there. So, you know, check all your nutrients, check your supplements, figure out what you need and, you know, work from really a holistic approach. And I'll even bring in, you know, kind of the other side of that is kind of what do you do for your other type of self-care, like your belief structures and such and mental health care, because all of that fits in as well. And it's really got to be the whole thing. Parents who are kind of wrapped up into the negativity of what's happening with their child, we have to get that part turned around too, because that piece is feeding into the whole family and it's making impacts that they aren't realizing sometimes. How much do you think is just genetic predisposition and how much um, can be lifestyle based or, you know, some of those things from you know a nutrition standpoint or even um, I don't know if maybe kind of like like what the parents or what the mom was eating and all that stuff. Kind of how, <laughs> how does that all kind of play in and what's your take on how much of that is just, you know, genetically determined? Well, this is the age old nature versus nurture discussion that's been around for as long as anyone's been thinking about it. Uh, and I, I agree, you know, I do think, yes, I see some trends in families. And so not infrequently, I'll have one parent bring a child in, whichever one it is. And so the child and we find these findings, and then the parent might sit there and say, I think you need to test me too. This sounds like you're describing me. The point is, I need to bring my spouse in <laughs> because I think you're describing my spouse. <laughs> so the child's raised in the family. Can we pull apart the biology from the environment? Not completely, but uh, there is this field of study. I, I love Br Dr. Bruce Lipton, and he's done a lot of work on epigenetics. And he said, we are not captive to our genetic predisposition at all. And I tend to subscribe to that because I do believe that with the notion of neuroplasticity, which is the understanding that we are changing our brain all the time and that there are influences and there are absolutely ways that we can enhance our brain functioning. Why not go for it? Find what works. Let's go for it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, hopefully you can still hear me. Okay. I had a, a weird little audio glitch pop up, but it seems to be okay on my end. 
um, playing with the connections here. Okay. Um, so um, when, when we look at kind of, again, going back to like treating the root cause, uh, I would love to kind of hear like, what, what does that look like in particular with, with some of the work that you're doing um, to, I guess, kind of connect that, that like, um, you know, attention gap where I'm not really remembering information or, or I have certain audio or, or visual uh, lapses. And, and how do you kind of, I guess, rewire the brain for lack of a better phrase, um, or maybe that is appropriate to kind of uh, get the child to um, start being able to retain that information, to understand the behavioral cues and, uh, you know, some of the work that you're doing. I would love to hear specifically, like kind of how, how you address some of those issues. Well, it's just been a fascinating journey. So um, I was in academia for 25 years, and the last 15 of it was really looking at this and um, doing some research around this, publishing on it, which is truly understanding what's happening here. The uh, Once we kind of get rid of labels and we just start looking at the base data, so what are the auditory and visual processing problems? What's the memory, the conceptualization, sequencing difficulty? Then, you know, I'll speak from what I do, obviously. Uh, we develop a training plan. And I, I tell folks it's like a gym for your brain. Uh, it takes the dedication as if you are going to a gym or you're learning some new physical functioning activity. Uh, this is for the brain, though. And so by retraining the brain and the rewiring is exactly what I tell people we're doing because what we're doing is working with neuronal pathways. So without getting too deep into it, because we don't need to, uh, we literally are setting up a training plan. It looks like video games that are very simple. They're the ones not designed to tr <laughs> trigger the dopamine <laughs> dump. Um, so they, the kids come in, the adults, and so this applies to adults too, just so your audience knows. There's no age limit on ADHD. And I've worked with people in their 50s where I have uncovered what this is and, and people realize, and I had a grown man weeping in my office one day because for the first time in his life, he understood why he couldn't keep a job. And so this has far-reaching implications, these auditory and visual processing problems. And by literally retraining the brain, we do about 20 hours of brain training, usually two or three times a week, 30-minute segments. And I can do it through a telehealth process. So you don't have to be within 20 or 30 minutes of my clinics. We have telehealth that we offer the same level uh, for people. We figure out what's going on. We do the training plan. We'll do 20 of those 30-minute sessions. We're literally training the neuronal pathways in the brain. And so by that repetition, which is how the brain learns everything we've ever learned is repetition, we do the repetition. And through that repetition, those neuronal pathways then are strengthened, just like you're strengthening any kind of muscle. The difference being when we strengthen these muscles, you don't have to keep coming back to the gym. <laughs> that makes sense. Is it is it kind of like you have this uh, library of these, you know, video games, the programs that you're using, and then based off of your assessment, you kind of look at, okay, here's what we're seeing uh, on the assessment. And so it's kind of like a, a pick and choose based off of the individual. And and then it's, all right, we, we get to work and we put in the time. And, and typically what's, what's that time? Like, I think you mentioned 20 hours. Is that kind of where you see uh, kind of that the biggest impact or is it something that they continue on for, uh, you know, for however long? Well, it certainly depends on how far we have to go. 
So uh, some children and adults come in, and when I do the assessment, they actually aren't able to score anything on either the auditory or the visual. And these are the folks that are struggling tremendously in their lives. So for them, we're actually building some neuronal pathways. Most people, though, already have the pathways in place. They may have some areas that are missing or pretty weak. And so then those become the primary target areas, areas kind of a tertiary approach. Um, so we are looking at really training those aspects of the brain. And once that gets trained up, so we'll do 20 sessions, we reassess to see, okay, how are you doing toward your goals? And then we'll modify the plan for those areas that are still remaining. And then usually the next 20, we'll get it. So it's like 10 hours of training, assess, and 10 hours of training and assess. Now, if we're working with uh, deeper um, areas, and I'll just drop it for a moment here, PTSD, I treat that. I treat trauma, I treat anxiety, I treat depression. It just depends that might need a little bit longer intervention, but we're able to do that and including chronic pain with people. So we've worked with all these conditions over the years. Uh, children with ADHD uh, tend to fall more into the 20 hour realm. They might need a, an extra 10 uh, hours on there, but generally speaking, we're pretty good on that. Interesting. So um you kind of mentioned some of those other, you know, depression and, um, you know, PTSD and chronic pain. And uh, is it is it kind of a similar process where you're actually seeing uh, through kind of the assessment process? Some of some of the things like I'm, I'm trying to draw the connection where um, I, it, it makes sense in my head with there are certain learning gaps. There are certain, you know, audio and visual gaps. And we're, we're filling those in with these brain exercises. Um, can you help me connect the dots on? where that might fit in with things like depression or things like chronic pain and um, the work that you're doing on the brain that would then help to, you know, uh, you know, improve some of those uh, conditions. Mm -hmm. Well, it's neuroplasticity is a thread between all of it. And so um, if someone has uh, chronic PTSD or chronic trauma complex, any of that complex anxiety, uh, not waxing too far, because that's probably its own segment unto itself, uh, it has to do with the amygdala system and EEG biofeedback has been found to be very effective, the neurofeedback, in helping that part of the brain calm down. So we literally retrain that part of the brain so that people who are struggling with that, I've worked with veterans, I've published my work about veterans uh, in tackling trauma and uh, anxiety and depression respond as well, as well as chronic pain. Uh, but I will always do this assessment because in the very vast majority of people who also have anxiety or trauma and these other complex situations, I'm finding and have found over 15 years, they also have underlying auditory and visual processing challenges. And so which came first? I don't know. We can't ever figure that one out. And we don't have to. We just have to work with where we are today. And if we have both of those, we treat them simultaneously. So if a person comes in with anxiety and then I find out they've got all these other things going on, we just build a plan to deal, tackle all of it together. Yeah. And with with all of that, are, are you also looking because you mentioned, uh, you know, with with ADHD, that kind of holistic approach of reducing screen time and um, getting outside and, and you know, eating quality nutrition and exercise and things like that. Are you kind of looking at that across the board as plays a role in, in all of these things? Yes. <laughs> so, you know, there's part of how much caffeine are you taking in? You know, I can't sleep at night. How many? Well, I drink three cups of coffee before I go to bed at night. 
okay, let's take a look at this. <laughs> what are you willing to do differently? And so that is a part of this. I'm also a licensed psychologist, obviously, within all of this. And so part of that is just really helping people from a holistic standpoint. So some people will do the neurofeedback to tackle some of that chronic amygdala problem and chronic pain. And then I'll also see them for psychotherapy, which gives them some of these other tools. It's like, okay, what are you telling yourself about all of this? You know, how are you managing your stress? What can we do to give you some tools to be able to navigate day to day while you're retraining your brain, because you have to put the whole thing together. It's not just one thing, typically. How much uh, have you explored some of the, I guess, ways of of kind of tapping into certain brain states that are uh, gaining popularity, you know, binaural beats and um, even, you know, certain breath work? practices and meditation or psychedelics or anything like that, that a lot of people are, um, it's kind of a big trend right now. How much have you looked into that since, you know, you're, you're talking about kind of rewiring the brain and, and, you know, there's certain things that we can do to get into certain brain states. And I'm sure you know a lot more about that than I do, but I'm, I'm curious if you've explored any of that in your practice. Mm-hmm. We do. Well, some of it, some of it we don't. <laughs> so I'll just be first and foremost to say, not a fan of psychedelics. Because I don't think we have to ingest things like that to get to where we need to go. And I think there's the potential for some residuals on that. The literature's out there for that. It's been around for a long time. So not a big fan. Doesn't mean people can't do it. Obviously, some will. But when we move over into mindfulness, when we move into a measured breathing, we actually teach our anxiety folks how to do the breath work. And we teach children how to do that as well, because some of them are pretty fidgety when they come in. They have to be able to get through a 30-minute session. And so we'll have these signs up on the wall. It's like, okay, let's practice this breathing. So the clinicians will teach this, you know, let's, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to sit down. We're going to get this going for before we get you hooked up and we're just going to you know practice because then it's giving this child self-control and that's what we're all about is really teaching that this comes from inside of you that we can tap into these skill sets you can learn these things for self-regulation while we're tackling these other things that you're not going to be able to tackle through self-regulation if you can't remember what someone's saying to you that's not a self-regulation thing that's a brain processing thing So we have to kind of put everything in the right order. If you have brain processing challenges, it's extraordinarily difficult for an individual to have enough attention, if you don't have attention, to be able to attend to what you need to do. So you need some support in that area. So let's do that. And in the meantime, let's take a look at all these other things. What are you doing for this? So mindfulness, teach that all day long. (laughs) Breath work, we teach that all day long. So those things, because we're teaching people how to connect in with themselves, read the messages that their body is giving them. Panic disorder is, is a situation where they're misreading, the body's misreading and they're misinterpreting what's happening in their environment. So how can we dial that down while we're dialing down that amygdala system? I want to take a brief pause in this conversation with Dr. Connie to tell you all about Organifi. Now, as you have probably gathered, there is a really important correlation between the things that you put in your body and how your brain performs. Organifi knows that. I know that. And hopefully you know that as well, which is why I trust Organifi when it comes to getting in 
the vitamins and minerals and micronutrients that my body needs. Now, of course, I rely mostly on whole foods and I look at my, my nutrition as a whole, but I start my morning every single morning with my Organifi green juice. The crisp apple flavor is absolutely delicious. The best tasting greens juice, greens product on the market. And I end my day with the Organifi gold chocolate because it helps to calm me down before bed. It helps to put me in that rest and digest state. And uh, it's it's uh, baseball season. Playoffs are here. It's football season. Uh, so, you know, depending on when you're listening to this. But right now, it's especially important for me to be able to wind down because when I'm watching the Phillies or I'm watching the Eagles, my adrenaline is like next level. And then when the event is over, and hopefully there's still the <laughs> the the joy and the excitement of the win or unfortunately if there's a loss then there's that that crashing feeling uh but sometimes i can be wired and as i'm as i'm reeling in my mind the point is i like to have something that just calms my brain down so it can kind of tune out some of that noise it can shut off that adrenaline response it can put me into a rest and digest mode and for me that's the organifi gold chocolate uh, that was my long-winded way of saying get yourself some organifi gold juice and get yourself some Organifi green juice and get yourself 20% off by using code POPFAM. If you go to Organifi.com slash POPFAM, that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash P-O-P-F-A-M, you can get 20% off all of their products. Now, I only talk about these things based off of personal use. That is always my agreement. Anytime I have a sponsor of the show, that is the only condition that I put in is that I have to, number one, try the product. Number two, enjoy the product. Number three, I will only do the ads and these uh, little ad reads from personal use. I will not talk about it if I am not using it personally. And Organifi is like, cool. I know that you like it. We know that you use it. We're we're good with that. So they actually have a new product that's coming out and I'm going to be trying that one. And I'm super excited about it, but I can't talk about it yet because I can't talk about it from personal use. Anyway, get yourself some Organifi green juice. Try the crisp apple flavor. It's delicious. Get yourself some gold juice. If you want to get the red juice as well, then you should just do the sunrise to sunset kit, which has all three of those products at a discount. Plus you get the 20% off. Organifi.com slash POPFAM. The code is POPFAM. And now let's get back to the interview with Dr. Connie McReynolds. And I'm assuming that when you're, you know, working with with children or even adults that, um, especially with kids, there's that support system, as you mentioned, and that the parents need to be on board. And I'm sure that the teachers need to be on board as well. Uh, do you find any resistance just because you are kind of going slightly against what like traditional, you know, all right, I'm, I'm going to see this patient and write a prescription and hope for the best. And that's, that's sometimes a little bit easier to digest than, Hey, we're going to take this holistic approach. We're going to work on mindfulness. We're going to do these brain exercises and we really need this support across the book. Do you find there's any resistance there for maybe teachers or parents? Only within the established traditionalist. (laughs) By the time the parents get to me, they've, Many have been down every road possible and nothing has resulted in lasting changes. And so by the time they find us and they're saying, you know, we are just worn out. We need something that's going to work. 
Uh, and then we do the assessment and I give them this information that no one else has ever given them, not because tests weren't run, but because it wasn't the right kind of test that was run to be able to get at this. There are all kinds of tests out there. And, and I work with a school psychologist. We had a pilot project in a school. When she learned about this, you know, she was doing three or four days of testing. And when she learned she could figure all this out in 20 minutes, she, you know, was kind of at shock at, you know, what could be accomplished in a short period of time. But you have to know how to get out the information. And that's really, you know, where we are. When we were in the school and I taught the teachers and showed them the data and talked to them about what this data set means for this particular child in their classroom, they would bring their cases, their children cases in for the discussion of, I've got this little girl and this is what she's doing. She's crying all the time and doing all this. It's like, well, let's take a look at the assessment. What did the assessment show us? Well, she has no visual processing, so she can't track anything that you're trying to show her on the board. She can't remember where she put her homework. She can't remember where her shoes are. She can't remember where her backpack is. She can't remember any of this because she doesn't have visual processing. And so she's having meltdowns because she's embarrassed. And so it's the embarrassment that happens to these children in the classroom. And when these teachers actually sat in on some of these assessments and sat in on this training that we did, it was a game changer for them. Suddenly, they weren't mad at this child for misbehaving in the classroom. And not all teachers are. There are teachers, like I said, my mother taught school second grade for 32 years in the same classroom. So I understand teaching. I've taught 25 years. <laughs> I understand the classroom. It's that there's a level of what you can tolerate if you have 10 or 12 of these children in two many classroom children there. Uh, these classrooms are too big. There's not enough support for actual learning. Uh, in my estimation, what I'm seeing in, in a lot of these schools around here, there's a long way that we can go. And my biggest dream is that we would get schools who understand that if you run this 20-minute assessment for your elementary school children and identify what's really going on, you may or may not want to do neurofeedback, but if you can at least figure out what the learning pattern is for this particular child, you can be a lot more effective in the classroom and a lot less frustration for everyone. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. At this this whole conversation, I have to tell you, like the the thing that's going on in the background of my mind is there's a lot of things in our just current education system that we leave out. And that's really like, you know, we, we don't really learn about emotional processing. We don't really learn about mindfulness. We don't really, and, and maybe things, you obviously have a lot of experience there. And um, it, it just seems like one of those things where we've advanced in so many ways. And we usually through technology advancements, through experience, we kind of find a better path. And we're like, you know what, this is, this is the more efficient way of doing things. Like education seems like we've just always been in the same let's let's put kids in a room together and speak at them and hope they can then regurgitate that information it just seems very antiquated especially um as i'm listening to a lot of the the frustrations from the teacher perspective and then the frustration from the student perspective and in your opinion is, is do we need to evolve the the education system as a whole the way that it's delivered is there a, a more efficient path that we're just not taking because we're we're set in our ways big yes there's a lot that we could be doing differently and it wouldn't be a big cost to any school district. 
Uh, certainly I have some investment in this process because I know it works. I've been doing it for 15 years and I've seen the progress and I've seen what can happen in a school district when they put this in and run it in an elementary school. So we had children who were going from failing in the principal's office day in and day out. We reduced all of those behavioral problems because we got to the core of the issue for what was going on with this child who couldn't remember what was being told to him or her. And if you imagine for a moment, we have how many millions of children in this country who have been channeled into a great program called special education that may not need to be there. They may not need to be there because they may simply have auditory and visual processing problems And once the school would figure this out and deal with that, they wouldn't need the special education services. And what kind of a budgetary change would that make in this country to do just this one simple thing? Yeah. And and even, you know, looking at, I read an article the other day that uh, talked about certain schools that are starting off the day with some some physical activity and they're seeing progress in the way that the kids are now engaging just you know a morning session of just get some blood flowing and some movement and and I think in the article it said that uh, there's some you know, countries in Europe that are are kind of have been doing that for a little bit longer. Um, mm-hmm. It just seems like there's some some things that make a lot of sense that we're just mm-hmm. ignoring for. Yeah. Because because it's difficult to change maybe what what's what's the reason oh i think when you're dealing with um academic settings educational systems it is very difficult to find a way in at least from what i've been seeing so you have to find someone who's internal to a particular district who understands what maybe some of this offers and then have the ear of the people who make the decisions And get them on board. So you're talking about trying to turn the Titanic right before it hits the iceberg. Um, How many people are willing to A, listen, and then B, take action? And so sometimes it's the smaller schools. Sometimes like this particular one that the pilot study in was a smaller school. It was a little more rural area. Uh, We had the school psychologist, as I said, on board with this. She had the ear of the administration. That's how we got in. It had been a 10-year dream of mine to be able to do that, and it took being invited in. I can stand at the door and knock all day long, but until people really understand what this is, you don't get invited in. So that's the challenge, and our systems are very closed to to new and innovative things. There's always the fear of, oh, but is this evidence-based? It's like, well, yes. There's 40 years of research now, almost 50 on neurofeedback working. So if you're not seeing that, you're not looking in the right place because it's been out there for a long time uh, and it works. <laughs> so uh, it, it has to require a shift. It has to require a shift in consciousness within the school. It has to require, sometimes it's the financial push. It's like we can't afford to keep doing this. That's uh, part of what's happening in some ways in this state is the, the you know, the budgets are just getting blown out of the water because of what's happening with these children and their needs and the needs not getting met. So how to get into that? Well, hopefully educating people. That's part of what all this is about. That's why I wrote the book. But so parents could have some tools to realize there are different things to advocate for. So teachers could understand what's happening in their classroom with certain children. 
We can't just teach to the ones who are the well-behaved ones that sit and learn easily. We've got to teach the entire spectrum of the children that are sitting in a classroom. And we're getting narrower and narrower in our interpretation of what that perfect child is in a classroom, yeah. in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. It's a, we had a, a bring it back to my my situation <laughs> with our, our stepson. He's he's 14 for, for context. He's a freshman in, in high school and his math teacher brought up the fact that he leaves to go to the bathroom every single class. It's like first time, not a big deal. Second time, thought it was a little bit strange. And then, you know, every single class I noticed it's a trend, gets up without fail, goes to the bathroom. Um, so I was driving him to the gym and I'm like, hey, hey, bud, like what's what's going on? You know, your math teacher mentioned that uh, you're, you're getting up and going to the bathroom. And he's like, you know, you know, teenagers, he's like, dude, I, I just, I cannot sit through an hour of that class. And he's like, I have to get up. I can't sit through it. Um, and it's like, all right, that's fair. Like, what, what would you do? And, you know, just from the tools that you have, you know, and, and your experience, what would be a potential solution there where the teacher's getting frustrated because he's leaving class and, um, you know, understandably so it's probably disruptive. And it's like, you know, you probably don't have to go to the bathroom at the same exact time every day, but, um, from his perspective, you know, I, what you know, as as the the step parent, I'm like I, I get it. If it's a long time, it, I, even myself to expect me to sit through an hour of math, you know, that's that's a lot. So mm-hmm. uh, it's hard for me to even be like, hey, you can't do that because yeah. I, I fully understand what what would be some, um, yeah. you know, a way to even like start the the conversation. Well, I think it's a great question because we see this all the time with children. Uh, our system is so rigid with what we think children should be doing uh, that we should be able to put them in classrooms from eight in the morning until three o'clock in the afternoon, and they should be able to sit still and be there and pay attention. Pay attention. You go back to times of before uh, where we are now. That wasn't the case. It was there was some understanding that people needed to kind of move around a little bit. Uh, we what's wrong with him standing up, maybe giving him give him a stand-up table at the back of the room or something? What's wrong with any of that? What's wrong with saying, hey, we've got, you know, 55 minutes of lecture, I'd say five minutes here, uh, if you need to get up and move around. And we've got teachers that don't have any problem with that at all, because they understand some people can't sit for that long. But maybe if he stands up at the back of the room, or he can move around a little bit, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the teacher's orientation is. Uh, what the strictness or you know lack of whatever might be. I don't want to judge in any way. But at the same time, you know, what is his need? His need may be to move around a little bit. Can that be accommodated? And if he's at the back of the room or the side of the room, does that cause less disruption? And what is the disruption? Is it really disrupting anyone else's learning? If someone gets up for a moment, I don't know. Is it really? Uh, I think it's a fair question to ask, you know, what is the disruption here? Granted, if you had 20 people getting up and leaving class at the same time, in the middle of a lecture, that might be a situation, <laughs> could be something, I don't know, going on there. But maybe, is it okay if he just stands up for a minute? And maybe he really dislikes math and is just trying to figure out how to get out of there, <laughs> And so, you know, can he do something before he goes into math to work off some energy? Uh, Is his brain just getting fried in there because he's shutting down with all the auditory information or visual information? So it could be a matter of auditory and visual processing. 
So if there is some of that going on, then that could be addressed. So it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a, a big spectrum of what could happen here. There's no right or wrong way. Part of it is figuring out really kind of what's going on in the classroom, what's happening with him, and then what could be a remedy that would be amenable for everyone that um, would make everyone okay. Yeah, yeah. He definitely uh, has always struggled. It's always been his uh, subject that he struggles with the most has been math. So it, it kind of correlates that he has a hard time sitting through it. It's the one that gives him the most difficulty. So, mm-hmm. um, but it's nice to know that there are solutions and that there, and that's, I think the biggest thing is um, I know, cause it's very parallel to what I do. Um, you know, you, you mentioned a lot of the times that parents who are coming to you, they've, they've been down the traditional path. They've kind of exhausted all options. It's very similar to the work that I do. Uh, you know, it's a lot of people who've gone the traditional dieting path mm-hmm. and regained weight 50 different times. And they're done with all the restriction. They're done with all the food rules and they just want, you know, to get to the root and and to solve the problem once and for all. And that's usually where we meet them and, uh, you know, similar for your work. And I think um, it's just nice to know that there is somebody who's really looking. And I, I think this really applies across the board. I think we are very accustomed to treating symptoms. Mm-hmm. I think Western medicine as a whole is is great at treating symptoms and we're maybe not so good at, at treating chronic issues and, and getting to the root. And uh, I think statistics would, would correlate with that, that chronic <laughs> disease is on the rise. And, you know, if I have a, acute issue or you know a wound that needs healing absolutely you know take me to the hospital but some of the chronic stuff uh you know i think there's still a lot that we can learn and still grow into um do you feel like there's you know sometimes and again this is this is a admitted bias of mine but i think sometimes i feel like it's so it's so much to try to turn for my industry it's so much to try to change the narrative and what's being taught and it's i feel like i'm going against a $60 $60 billion behemoth that people will always, <laughs> you know, pursue the quick fix in the short term and, you know, patch symptoms. And it's like, man, is, am I ever going to make a dent? Are we ever, not just me, I think mean, there's mm-hmm. plenty of people who are doing similar work, but are we ever going to change the tide? Do you ever feel that way with the work that you're doing? All the time. I'm in psychology. <laughs> so I tell you, you know, the tide, whoo, it's a it's a big one. It's like a little tsunami always, you know, kind of rushing in because, oh, it's not the tried and true. And oh, my gosh, if I've heard how many times insurance companies have said, oh, but it's not evidence based. It's like, well, you've got 50 years of evidence based. How much do you need? You know, it just becomes an excuse for not covering it in some cases, particularly out here. Uh, the other places they cover it. So it's, you know, it's a real mixed bag on what's going on. Uh, so hence why I'm really trying to get some of this out is that there are different ways and talking about changing the narrative. That's where I am. I want to change the narrative about how we treat these long-term chronic, as we call them challenges, because we can parlay what our body and brain is capable of doing. We just have never been trained to believe that. We've been trained to believe that if I take this little pill, it's going to fix everything. You know, there was a time when there was a magazine article years ago, decades ago. I'll date myself if I say, and I'm not going to, but (laughs) they had a plate where it was just pills on it. That this is all you're going to need in the future. Just take these pills. And we've really come to that point. The tragedy of this is it doesn't work. So, you know, if you've got an antibiotic problem, yeah, you can take a pill. If you have ADHD, you might take a pill. It might help. 
but the research consistently has shown the medication does not get rid of the problem of ADHD. Children who've been on it for a long term, they get off of it, their symptoms are as bad as a child has never been treated with medication. So it's not getting rid of the problem. And that's what I'm after. Let's deal with this at the base level for where we can actually affect change, make these changes, and then these children are going to go on and do well in life. And here's an interesting fact. For children who are not reading on level by the end of third grade, they are at risk for having significant learning problems as they go on through school. If you have auditory and visual processing problems as a child in grade school, you could have learning problems when it comes to reading. And then what happens? This is where we start getting kids around 10, 11, 12. It's because they were able to get through primary grade okay, but now they're in middle school and the world has changed. So up and through third grade, children are being taught how to read. From fourth grade on, they're using reading to learn. And if you can't read, your learning is going to be affected. If you can't learn, your educational opportunities are dwindling. And when you have behaviors that go along with that, many times these children are in trouble in school. Uh, They end up in a lot of cases, um, boys in particular, will end up getting in trouble. Sometimes they get kicked out of school. Sometimes they end up, you know, in less than favorable situations because of this. And if we could just tackle this at the front end, let's look at this in the elementary school. If we've got a child who's struggling with auditory and visual processing problems, if we correct that, what have we just done for that child? What have we just done for the outcomes of that school? What have we just done for our community? And what have we just done for society? It's a big picture. Yeah, really well said. Um, I would love to, uh, I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I'd love to give you the opportunity to uh, let everybody know where they can get a copy of your book, where they can learn more about the work that you're doing. And, uh, you know, for people like myself who, you know, this definitely resonates and hits close to home, uh, how they can uh, reach out and connect with you. Absolutely. So my website's pretty simple. It's www.conniemcreynolds.com. So you can go on there. The book is listed right there on the homepage, Solving the ADHD Riddle. It's available on Amazon. I think it's also out on uh, some of the other platforms as well. Uh, You can absolutely get a hold of me there. And my email is very simple as well. It's Connie at M-C-R-E-Y-N-O dot com. And then the phone numbers are listed there as well. So um, I really hope people can find the answers that they're looking for. And really, this is about providing hope where there really hasn't been so much of that over the years. I agree. And I will post all of that in the show notes so everybody can check out the book and reach out. Uh, and I really appreciate your time and, and all the work that you're doing and your wisdom. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll stay in touch. And I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely.